You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee. I am Paul Doroshenko. You waited not for me to introduce you, finally. You've taken on your co-hosting. I'm, I might change back to the old system next week, Kyla. I really don't know. I just... Very unpredictable. When you pause there, I thought I should introduce myself. I can't believe we've worked together this long. You know, this month is like our our 10-year... No, sorry, our 9-year anniversary of working, officially working together. Yep, I hired you as a summer student. Yeah, and I started nine years ago. So I guess happy anniversary to us. That's great. Happy anniversary. I'm, it's just sure. a long time. That, you seem excited. <laughs> well, no, I, I, I enjoy doing this. I, yeah. Anyway, um, so I thought I would start with our ridiculous driver of the week. See, now last week when you, you took me off guard by announcing that, and I thought it was, was going to be... A, I know, but I, I mean, I just threw it out there. I didn't think you'd necessarily pick it up. Um, and, uh, I, I thought maybe it was going to be once a month and then I thought maybe it'd be the, at the end of the show. So it'd be something to stick around for at the end, because I don't know. Stick okay. Around. Well, stick around then. Well, no, this well, week you've announced it. So I think we've got to get on <laughs> it, but I think you had two. I have two this so week. So we can do one at the beginning and one at the end. Okay. So the first ridiculous driver of the week, I think, you know, this one's coming is the, uh, North Vancouver oh. kid, yeah. adult, but kid. Um, child who, of someone, everyone child is of someone who was driving his mother's car and managed to get himself an IRP. Well, he had a collision. Yeah. Yeah. He crashed his mom's car. Yeah. Totaled then, it. Yeah. Oh, was it totaled? Yeah. yeah that's okay. what they said. Yeah. Totaled to- his mom's totaled car. Mom's car. Yep. Gets served an IRP. So license gone immediately for 90 days. A few hours later, the police spy him driving his father's car. Well, he had another accident. Did he? Yeah, he had two accidents. Two accidents, okay. So he had I an thought accident. he just got the dad's car impounded. No, 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 he had an accident in dad's car too. So it was two accidents, um, same day, uh, got an <laughs> IRP from the first one driving mom's car. And then the next one was uh, a probably maybe a criminal impaired investigation or another the IRP. stories I read made it well sound like it was a, an, uh, another IRP, which is just wrong. Well... I don't know. He hasn't gone to court yet for the first one or had a chance to dispute it. So maybe he was innocent uh, in the first one. And they were so worried about the fact that they had given an innocent person an IRP that they decided just to go with another IRP. You know, I'm pretty sure that if three or four hours after you get the first one, you're involved in another motor vehicle collision and also somehow produce a reading on an Alco sensor FST device. In that circumstance, I have more confidence in the device than in you. It's just a bad day. It's a it's really just bad a, That was day. just a bad day. You know, we That's, all have our bad days yeah. and sometimes it's just a bad incident in a bad day. There's 365 yeah, days, in a row. <laughs> 365 days in the, in the year and you, you know, you might live 80 years and there's 24 hours in the day and yeah. 60 minutes in, in every hour. So, I mean, you could have a bad couple of minutes twice in a day in, in your life over 80 years. My parents would kill me if I did that. Like, and I'm in my thirties. I think he was in his 30s. Yeah. I just, I don't understand. I think probably his parents had some indication at this point in life that this is something that could possibly happen with this fellow. 
Yes, probably. Anyway, it made it sound originally like the headlines made it sound like he was 17 or 18 years old. No, but he was like but a was grown his, man. Yeah. yeah. So. Well, he's probably got something going on in his life. We it's all, hard. Yeah, we all struggle with things. Anyway. I'm not judging. But. We, except the fact that he's the wacky driver of the week or what was it? The ridiculous, ridiculous driver, driver of the week. Ridiculous driver of the week. That was pretty ridiculous. So speaking of people who are struggling, there are a number of people who leased BMWs who are really struggling right now. Well, I mean, the housing prices on the west side of Vancouver are dropping by seventy to $100,000 a month, and you've still got to make that lease payment on the BMW, and you bought that house with the intention of flipping it and making yourself a million dollars, and so you could handily just lease that BMW. But it turns out that um, what's been happening is that some people have been leasing BMWs and then not using them for the lease, taking them out of the country, transferring ownership in them, doing some things contrary to the lease. So, and I never knew this. I didn't know until I read about this that when you leased, I've obviously never leased a vehicle before. Um, I didn't know that when you leased a vehicle, you had to tell the leasing company what you were going to use it for. Well, the leasing company in this case is BMW, and BMW is, they still own, they are the owner of the vehicle. Well, pursuant to Section 83 Sub 2 of the Motor Vehicle Act, they're an owner of the vehicle, but you are also the owner of the vehicle. That's purely to to facilitate the other sections of registered owner under the Motor Vehicle Act. I know, so they can ticket people who flee the scene of accidents. So the um, BMW Canada is the owner of the vehicle, and BMW Canada is entitled to know what you're doing with the vehicle. And you know, <laughs> I guess it's their so, property, and until you pay out the lease, you they are entitled to control what you do with it. Well, depending on the contract, you might not just be able to pay out the lease like that either. Like you might have to return the vehicle for inspection before you can pay out the lease. I don't know. I mean, it depends on their contract, but their contract is going to govern everything because it's it's a lease agreement, so it's going to be entirely governed by the contract. So I guess the way they were discovering this was that they would lease it to one person. And then at the end of the lease period, someone else, a third party, would come in from with a check, not from the lessor, lessee, I can't, I never remember. Anyway, the person who was leasing the vehicle. Exactly. Not from the person who was leasing the vehicle to pay out the lease on behalf of the person who entered into the lease agreement. And they started to think that this was really suspicious that this was happening. So they took the check. They took the money, obviously. You'd and think th- there'd be still paperwork to sign over to transfer title and things like that. Yeah, it's probably already done. Um, it's probably already done. Plus, you can transfer all that title and sign all that paperwork for somebody else. That's true. Yes, um, because we do not have enough restrictions on what you can do with car sales and purchases in this province. And I'm, I'm that, not saying that, that disingenuously. And that will change. Yeah, that's going to change. Um, so they investigate. And what they did was they used the in-car GPS to try and locate what happened to the cars. They became suspicious that something had happened. They didn't know what. And they found that the in-car GPS had been deactivated. And that's interesting because it's very you know, suspicious. You you think about okay when they started putting the equivalent of a black box in cars, uh, it's usually a de- uh, system designed by Bosch that is in cars you know for the last twenty years now um, that will tell you information just preceding an accident. You know a lot of people were uncomfortable with that because it's like your car is spying on you. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, they started putting in GPS, and we had um, you know Chevrolet General Motors products having OnStar, where you know there's your it can phone you or your car can phone. Yeah, if it finds out your car's been in a collision, it phones the police for you, yeah, which now, is horrible in an impaired driving case. Well, there can be circumstances where it's completely wrong. I mean, you might have a small accident, be walk walk away, and your car is fine and everything, and you're going to deal with it later out on your farm. And meanwhile, they dispatch a police and ambulance and a fire truck. Yeah, because uh, you're your, not responding to your farm where your truck is, where you, you know, it rolled into a ditch. Um, so there's circumstances where that could be a problem. But this is interesting. So this is just basically on they've got gps and they can track you just like james bond's tracker and goldfinger <laughs> remotely Rem- find out where you remotely, are yeah and what you're doing find like, out your vehicle if like i were leasing a car i would want to turn that off in fact i feel like phoning the manufacturer of my car and telling them if it's on you need to disconnect from it you might have one this is the reason that i only drive like 1970s you know, general Chevys and <laughs> 1953 Buick. And the, 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 you know, primary reason is I don't want to be spied upon. But who knew? I didn't know that they had GPS in every vehicle that they could just turn on, find out where you are and track your movements. Yeah, it's freaky. But also... I mean, I knew that you could you could buy that as an aftermarket thing if you were worried about a, your particular vehicle being stolen. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, it. two things I want to say about it. One is that it's freaky suspicious especially because we talked oh i don't know like eight months ago on this um podcast about cases involving um unlawful exports of cars from canada and somebody i believe it was sam cooper did an analysis of cars that were exported from canada in sketchy ways that ultimately ended up being used as uh vehicles to commit crimes in other countries and by and large um suvs that were exported from canada were used to like fill them with explosives in terrorist attacks well there's not that many terrorist attacks relative to the number of suvs that are probably leaving canada in unlawful ways i think most of them are being driven by people who shouldn't have them but but i mean they end up they probably end up in north korea yeah, but you see a lot of them apparently going to like the Middle East where there's but, lots of... Yeah, just a few weeks ago, Mercedes was trying to respond to explain why the North Korean authorities have S-class Mercedes vehicles. And, you know, we were talking about it, I think, on this very podcast about mm-hmm. the fact that this is happening. Well, this is an example of that type of thing happening. We don't know where it went. Looking at the names, I would say that they went to China. Uh, the names well, there was that were one involved. Greek name. No, I don't know. Well, but still, who knows? But the um, Greece know, that's has making its own the, problems right now. Making the assumption it's going to the place where the names yeah. come from. I mean, people are travel around the world and do all sorts of things these days. But um, that seemed likely. But you could imagine that they could end up in North Korea or somewhere like that. And BMW legitimately has some interest in selling the vehicle and knowing where it's going. Um, and you know, if you're going to just sell it to somebody outright, you know, that's one thing, I suppose, you know, you own the vehicle and who you decide to sell it to later on, it might be governed by the contract. Um, it also affects their, the value of their vehicles in other countries. Like there's some vehicles that are more exclusive in another country that are readily available here. Like you you might be able to sell that vehicle for $20,000 more in China than you could sell it for here. And, and they're entitled to make that extra money because that's what they do. 
Yeah, so it's, you know, it's undermining their business. And there are, there have been successful lawsuits where if a business has an established presence in another country and somebody sets up selling that business's products in that country, they've been successfully sued for doing that. So I think these people expose themselves potentially to uh, to those types of lawsuits if they're actually reselling the vehicles. I guess the fascinating thing about this story right now is we probably wouldn't even be having this discussion if it was four years ago that this took place. We're having it now because of the Peter German report uh, into money laundering using cars. Using and this cars. is just another another example. How did the yeah. BMW, BMW had some... 57,000 bucks. Yeah, and... well, they had some suspicious check they described that was the deposit, yet they took it. Mm-hmm. You know, they accepted it quite happily. And then there was the uh, the payout on the thing, which was, again, from also a suspicious, suspicious. <laughs> person. But I'm assuming they were smart and took it and put it into their lawyer's trust account to figure out what was going to oh, happen no, with that. Paul, but come on. Then now their lawyer's going to be... Don't bring down be, the lawyers. Well, no, I mean, you know, you accept that money. You don't want to use that money because you might have to deal with it later on in the course of litigation. So I could understand wanting to sit on that money uh, take that payment and sit on that money. But of course the lawyer doesn't want to put themselves in a uncomfortable position either, but it could end up being paid to court, which is also an option. I suppose you could have that money probably paid into court to wait until the determination and the litigation. Yes. That's how you launder money in BC, pay it into court. Actually, there's some investigations into that right now. Yeah. It wouldn't surprise me that Um, that happens in some certain their mortgage discharge cases where money's being paid into court and people are concerned that that's another avenue of money laundering why not yeah exactly why not anyway the other concern i have about this is if the vehicle is paid out and bmw takes the money and the title is transferred whether they actually have the right to access that GPS data at that point. No, I know, and that's where we were headed a minute ago in the conversation. Um, do they even have that permission to do it? Um, if it's and in your contract, man, read your car contract. Fulfill, it could be in the contract, A. Um, if the vehicle is out of Canada, uh, then they would be probably, uh, you know, BMW accessing it from Germany would probably be governed by German law, not Canadian law. So mm-hmm. if they're accessing that from Germany, they may be permitted to do it by German law, or they might be accessing it from some country where there is no problem with that. I don't think the um, privacy legislation in British Columbia or Canada would stop them if the vehicle is out of out of country. No, but if the vehicle is in Canada, because maybe some of these vehicles are in Canada, they haven't been able to conclude they've gone overseas, they've just guessed. But if the vehicle is in Canada, they could potentially, if it's not part of the contract, be in significant violation of privacy legislation here. I suppose it depends. I mean, I I don't, it's a violation of privacy legislation in the sense that they are accessing information about you without your permission, maybe if it's not in the contract. Again, there's so many caveats here, but is it significant? I mean, what are we talking about really? We're talking about- your movements. I don't well, want I don't want no, my that, car they, company to know where I'm going. They may not see the direction you're going. They may just at a point in time determine try to determine whether or not your car is still in Canada. And it may not be a situation where they're pinning it down to. I mean, they might be able to program their GPS to say not tell you like this block and street of it, but just to be able to tell you the city or something like that. So, I mean, they may have thought about it. They do have lawyers. Yeah, but just because companies have lawyers doesn't mean they've never done anything illegal. Well, there's things we've done that we've 
thought about after the fact and thought, gee, maybe we should have done that differently just because we're lawyers. Not necessarily illegal, but things that we would have done differently. Yeah. And maybe they're doing... Anyway, it's just interesting because there may actually be like a privacy act violation here that people who are involved in these lawsuits with BMW might want to have their lawyers look into. But in the bigger picture, how often is BMW and these other companies, how often are they looking at your travel? I don't know. And how often are they like using that for marketing data and for other information? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And are they selling that information to anybody? Is Facebook finding out and then selling that information to Amazon or like, <laughs> or selling it back to... Uh, to well, this to, is the thing, you know, you think uh, about what you're doing online supplier. and you use private browsing if you're scared that, you know, you're you're going to be tracked for your online activity and given these targeted ads. Like I looked at something on a uh, online clothing retailer the other day and now it's coming up in sponsored ads on Twitter for me to buy it, it's, which is crazy. Well, they changed all that a few years ago. No, but like all their cookie requirements. I look at it on my home computer and it comes up on a sponsored ad on Twitter on my mobile app. I know. It so it knows what my Twitter login is. I know. But I'm fully willing to do that for being online. I could change to private browsing and avoid that. You can't do that in your car. Because apparently if you turn your GPS off, BMW will sue you. You're suspicious. Well, I, I don't think they're just going to sue you if you turn your GPS off. I mean, they they have they had reasonable grounds to believe that something fishy was going on here. You but were, you but they were still using like, the Waze app the other day, and you were we were looking at how they had ads that would take you to fast food that was close to your location. But that's for everybody. Yeah, but it's still... But it knows where I am. It knows where you are, and it's using that data to try and sell you a product. I'm, I'm always uncomfortable with that. I continue to be uncomfortable with that. People, I suppose, will become more comfortable with it in the future. Uh, because it's so ubiquitous, and mm-hmm. I guess that's what Google is wanting. Um, it just makes me feel like I am a um, an animal being fed for slaughter. Like the it's like my existence on the planet is okay. Where's the next cheeseburger? Well, um, you know. I mean that's my existence on the planet. I don't know. I really want a cheeseburger. Thanks a lot. <laughs> I, I had a matzo burger today. I'm Damn like, you! Um, I haven't had fast food since breakfast. Um, the uh, no, the other um, thing about that is I was talking about it with an officer in traffic court the other day. We were talking about young people. And like I say, young people, and then I feel horrible because I feel like a Reece young people. the young people again. But I'm not a young people. There's this whole generation that came. You know, my generation came after your generation, and you guys, you know, had to adopt technology. We had technology. My generation, you know, around like middle school age, it started to become a thing. Like you know, present in most homes. But for kids now, like being plugged into a phone or an iPad or a laptop and having constant access to data at your fingertips is, it's like part of their lives. It's the way they've been brought up and they can't separate themselves from it. This is what the officer was saying, right? Like you get these people that are, you know, in their early 20s or, you know, even teenagers that are pulled over for the cell phone and they just can't understand separating themselves from their phone or their whatever device. Um... You know why I'm looking at you like this. Because you also can't separate yourself from your no, phone? No, because I don't like the generalization. No, I, I get it. But I'm I'm telling you what somebody told me. Okay. So I don't know why you're giving me the skeptical look. Well, go, I give, mean, go give it to the VPD officer. I'm sure there's something <laughs> to it to some extent. But I just, you know, it's the same as racism. It's just assuming that everybody is 
uh, the, 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 the or, or racial um, profiling. It's assuming that everybody's the same as somebody you've viewed at some point or you've come to some idea of at some point. Yeah, I get it. It forgets the individual. Sure, but, you know, the the point, point I was the trying, to, was trying make to make there. Was. No, the point I was trying to make there was a lovely little segue into the discussion about traffic court that I wanted to have with you and a traffic ticket case recently. And you've now ruined it. Sorry. <laughs> so we have a, a, See, a, a you know, you should I warn me. We should have a script. I mentally try to craft these nice segues in our topics so that everything blends lovely into the other for our listeners. And you just, just, just stomp jump right into that. it. Okay. Jump right into it. Jump so, right into it. BC Supreme Court recently uh, released reasons for judgment in a case involving a speeding driver who was acquitted after, um, uh, after his uh, traffic court appeal decision. Yes, and you better explain yes. why. So what happened in this case was the driver had testified at his trial that he was driving fast and he was expe exceeding the speed limit, but he had an excuse. And that's because he had to get away from this really bad erratic driver that was following him too closely and causing, you know, a personal safety risk to him and potential for an accident. And so he needed to speed up to create distance between himself and this other bad driver. And that's when the officer pulled him over. Now, he tries to testify about this in his trial, but according to uh, the judge on the appeal, the judicial justice, um, who remains unnamed, uh, was continuously interrupting him in his defense and not giving him the opportunity to tell his side of the story. So he appealed and argued, you know, basically, I didn't get to tell my story and the judge didn't realize that I had the defense of necessity. So on appeal, uh, the judge agrees Yes, he was interrupted too many times. He didn't give uh, him a reasonable opportunity to tell his story. And then says, plus he had the defense of necessity, and so therefore I enter an acquittal. And I'm surprised. Right? I can't believe it didn't go back for a new hearing. It, that's exactly what should go back for a new hearing. It's not as though she said the interruptions were so significant and so severe that it ruined trial fairness and it would be, you know, it would be an affront to the justice system because of how unfair his first trial was to not send it back, or to send it back. And where's the cross-examination by the other party? Where's their well, opportunity exactly. to cross-examine him on that You know, if he's argument? interrupted and he couldn't get his story out, then he tells his story on appeal for the first time and it's never tested. How is that, like, that seems to me to be, like, I agree if there's con constant interruptions, the law is clear on that. If you don't get the opportunity to be heard, it's got to, it's got to be, um, the decision's got to be quashed, but that doesn't mean entering an acquittal because somebody says they had a defense. Ultimately, it's not for the court sitting on the appeal to, um, assess the defense on the evidence as it could have come out and then enter an acquittal without any testing of that evidence. It's to send it back so that the trier of fact can do the proper assessment they were supposed to do probably in front of a different JP in the circumstances, but still. I find it interesting because we have lots of IRP cases where it looks like there is only one potential outcome uh, when it's sent back. <clears throat> and rather than, you know, it could just be quashed there uh, in many of those circumstances. It doesn't need to go back for another hearing, force mm -hmm. the person to go through the whole procedure. And all the evidence is there on paper most of the time. And it's a, it's an error that can't be corrected. There's no more further evidence that's provided in an IRP hearing, uh, that, uh, is provided the second time around unless, you know, you, you're submitting it. But in circumstances where there is no e evidence necessary from the applicant, 
and you go to BC Supreme Court and the judge says, well, this is wrong. And I mean, you, there's no way you could uphold this. I'll send it back for a new hearing. You know, those are the circumstances to me when the court should be just quashing it, the thing and not sending it back for a new hearing. But in a circumstance like this, where there's evidence that the guy has to give yet. And that has to be tested. And has to be weighed by the trier of and fact and has to be tested in cross-examination. And in the judgment, there was no analysis of the law of necessity. <coughs> she just seemed to accept that it was necessity. But necessity requires the court to consider, well, first he has to raise, uh, raise an air of reality to the necessity defense. And then the Crown has to disprove it beyond a reasonable doubt with regard to those three factors, right? Yep. Um, there has to be an actual risk to him. He has to show, or the, the Crown has to show that, that there was an alternative available to him, a reasonable legal alternative available to him that he didn't take. Or that there was no other reasonable, obvious, clear alternatives that you would have considered. Yeah. And um, and that the, the harm avoided was greater than the harm caused. Well, it's arguable, and the Crown should have had the opportunity to argue this, that speeding to get away from an erratic driver is creating the same level of potential harm because of the harms, the well-known, well-documented harms associated with speeding, at least that the court accepts, Ian Tootill, I'm sorry. <laughs> and... Um, and then you have this, you know, the, the well, there were probably lots of other reasonable legal alternatives. Why couldn't he change lanes? Why couldn't he pull over and let the vehicle pass? Um, if, if there's two lanes and the guy gets up beside you, step on the brakes. He goes ahead. He goes ahead. And just like, <laughs> Maybe slow he'll down, stop ahead, you know. And, you know <laughs> slow down, let him carry you. on his way and get out of your way, right? But he didn't do that. He sped up. And I just don't see how... how his evidence could have, there's nothing in the judgment to suggest, it did suggest that there was no reasonable legal alternative available to him. This concerns me because of the issue of duress um, of, and necessity. Uh, there are lots of circumstances. Which are two separate defenses. Yeah, but there's lots of circumstances where people want to advance a necessity defense. And I usually dissuade them because I don't think it's going to buy it. And the other thing is, a lot of the ones I look at and I think, yeah, I'll take the bloody speeding ticket to save my life. Yeah. Um, you know, I'll, I take the risk. I'm going to speed. I, there are, maybe there was no options. Maybe there were some options. Maybe I could have picked up my phone. Regardless, like if I really felt that I was in peril, I'd be willing to take the speeding ticket. Like just like if I'm hunting or in the woods and I'm drunk and my buddy gets injured, I will, even if I'm drunk, get in the get car in the and car. drive, and I'll take the bloody conviction if I save my friend's life, yeah, you but know, you especially. Get the like, but the whole point... I know, but my point is I would take it. Yeah. You know, we, we don't have to have the defense in those circumstances because any reasonable human would say, you know what, my friend's life is more yeah, important than me it. getting an impaired conviction. Like, I don't care. Like, yeah, fuck it. I'll, I'll <laughs> give, me a, give me an impaired. If I save my friend's life, fine. I'll wear that as a badge of honor. I get that. I, I think that this decision is potentially dangerous to the necessity defense because it really dilutes it. And the necessity defense has only been applied in rare cases in those extreme circumstances like the examples you just gave, where it really is an issue of life or death, where people would make that fuck it calculation. 
This didn't seem to rise to a life or death level, and unless there was something extreme about the driver, the other driver's driving behavior, like it was deliberately aggressive towards him, you know, he was escaping. Has to be tested by the evidence when but, they have a trial. But, yeah, it wasn't tested. Um, I just don't see, like, I think that runs the risk of making the necessity defense something that anybody can resort to, saying, well, it worked for this speeder because he had to speed up to get away from a car that was driving a little badly on the road. And all of a sudden, you're going to have judges diluting the law of necessity. He was tailgating me. I had to speed. Well, which makes it less likely to succeed for those people in that extreme circumstance because you're going to have, once you have this over application of necessity and the dilution, then you're going to have the swing, the pendulum swing the other way where the standard is applied too high or, God forbid, crown appeals where they make it all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada to try and reformulate the test for necessity and make it like an affirmative defense where the burden is on the accused to establish that it applied rather than simply to raise an error of reality and then the burden shifts to the crown to disprove it. Think of the mouthwash circumstance with well, IRPs. Yeah. So when when IRPs came out, immediate roadside prohibitions, where you're punished on the basis of a fail on a roadside breath tester, um, one of the things that the media latched onto was the fact that mouthwash will give you a false fail. We've proved actually that uh, you can get a false fail with great propon. Um, but if you haven't seen things. the most recent episode of Can You Fail It, head on over to YouTube and check it out. Yeah. Uh, the, um, and many other things will lead to a fail. Most of those things probably have alcohol in them, but we're still not certain about some of them. But uh, in any event, the one of the things that has alcohol in it, most mouthwash, a lot of mouthwash has alcohol in it. And so that came, uh, w- w- was part of the story when the IRP scheme was introduced and it was on the news and the adjudicators were to the point of laughing at it, mm-hmm. um, you know, and saying that British Columbians have the freshest breath in the country and, and things <laughs> like that. Because so many people were running it, and then meanwhile, there's going to be people who legitimately, yep. like the people who are tested often in the morning on their way to work. Or people who have like dental issues and they need to be rinsing with mouthwash frequently because they've got gum infection or surgery. Some people have some obsession with it. Um, yeah, people with OCD. Yeah. And some people are just concerned about hiding the odor of liquor that they've got, yeah. so they use some mouthwash <laughs> that contains the liquor. That happens to contain liquor. No, I haven't had a drink in an, in an hour. His fresh, minty, liquory breath. Two beers at lunch, at, yeah, liquory breath, and they've had five drinks instead, and they want to hide it with mouthwash, but it's been an hour since they had a drink, and they've contaminated it. So now what happened is that all sorts of people who were likely innocent couldn't advance that defense. And the defense maybe has improved now. We don't see people phoning us and saying, yeah, I, you know, with the same regularity as we used to. It was, seemed like everybody was using Listerine. Yeah. Um, Which Listerine? Uh, the green one. Yeah. The one <laughs> with alcohol like, in like it. how you know. Yeah. Oh, studied okay. up on the internet. <laughs> There's some chat room somewhere where they're discussing possible defenses mm-hmm. on IRPs. Also, I ate an entire loaf of Wonder Bread. Yeah. The Justin McShane with defense. A, with a banana. I wonder it. how many calls he got after he made that video. I don't know. I want to ask him. I can't believe that he did that. <laughs> I haven't seen him in a while. Yeah, he's been not around. Yeah, well, I'm sure he's still out there. He's got his reasons. Okay, yeah. so speaking of defenses that don't work but should and things that got ruined for the innocent people, that actually does segue nicely into our third topic. Good. Which is this most recent report of the, I think, one of the biggest injustices that we've got going on with the IRP scheme right now, which is people who legitimately cannot provide a sample. So there is a man uh, in chase, and man in chase, if you're listening, I will appeal your case pro bono. Please call me. I would like to help you. Um, 
He was stopped two times in the last six months by police, uh, asked to provide a sample into a breathalyzer, just a random demand, so no suspicion. No, The officer had no reason to think that he'd been drinking. And he tried to blow, but because he has extreme asthma and COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, he was unable to provide sufficient air into the device and the prohibition was revoked. First time. Second time, prohibition upheld because the officer said, oh, I could tell he was just faking it and playing around and, you know, obfuscating with the device. And that's the type of evidence that you actually see is, I could tell he was faking it and playing around, and that was upheld. So he ended up with a 90-day. Yeah. Now, you know, the first one was enough of a shame, 21 days uh, before he would have got his decision revoking that driving prohibition. Meanwhile, no license, no money because he's on disability, and he looks after a friend. He's the driver for a wheelchair-bound friend. And he had to pay for the hearing in both cases because you have to pay for the hearings in British Columbia. And you don't get that money back even if you're successful. So that's Out of the pocket of somebody with disability. Yeah. So the um, upsetting for him the first time around, second time around, he submits basically the same evidence and it's upheld. And this is like a second prohibition. So it's the second time he's into it. Now he's 21 days. He's 21 days the second time. He's at 42 days before he gets his decision. Um, he's had 42 days off the road and no alcohol, like he had nothing to drink. There was not an odor of liquor on him or uh, an admission of consumption. It was uh, the mandatory, arbitrary mandatory uh, breath test that we see that came about from um, this legislation that was brought to us by Jody Wilson-Raybould. Yeah, if you're thinking of voting Justice for an independent Minister, candidate this uh, next election. I would encourage you not to vote for Jody Wilson-Raybould because... The, if you're in Jane Philpott's writing, I got no beef with her. Yeah. <laughs> Other than then she voted for the legislation, but the, they vote as a block. I think, yeah, they vote as a block and they don't really delve into it. I think they rely on that minister to be doing something good. And this was not doing something good. This was doing something bad, which is telling the police that you can make anybody blow, even if they don't smell of liquor, even if they don't admit to consumption, even if they're a senior citizen who, uh, or a person who has lung problems. And I will tell you, 19 years as a lawyer, uh, and defending literally thousands of impaired driving cases, I have never had a police officer tell me of a time where they said, you know what, I, I think this guy really couldn't blow, so I just let him go. And I've never had a client come to me and say, you know what, I was pulled over one time or I was pulled over last week or even just a phone call consultation and I tried to blow and the police officer could see that I just couldn't blow because of my, my, you know, my breathing problem. I will not be as extreme as you because I have had one case where an officer testified. This was in the course of my examination of the breath tech. It was a, a breath demand refusal constructive, and I was cross-examining him about that fact that, you know, you've never, never let anyone go after concluding they couldn't provide a sample. And he said, well, no, there was this one time with this, like, 90-pound Asian woman who was, like, four feet tall, and I just, like, looking at her, I don't think she was physically capable of producing enough air. Now that was in the data master, which required a lot more air than the roadside device. Um, and so that's could the be approved difficult. instrument and you had to blow through it for a long time yeah. for it to collect. I it. had trouble blowing into that um, every time I've used it and like I'm experienced at it. Well, uh, we noted when the AlcoSensor FST came in that refusal cases appeared to go up. Yes. And we got anecdotal evidence from lawyers in Alberta who told us the same thing because it was introduced at about the same time into Alberta to replace the um, 
Alcosensor, uh, or no, the intoxilizer. 400. Yeah, 400D. Uh, yeah. So the, uh, you know, certainly there is a problem and some people are going to not be able to blow. And, you know, in addition to this, at the same time that we introduced this particular device, we also, um, you know, the device is missing a feature that we had on the old device. Yep. But really, uh, to my mind, that is not even an issue uh, because the, the difficulty here is the police officers making this determination and you've got people who are going to inevitably have breathing problems and you've been training these police officers for years to be cynical as could be. Oh yeah, I had an officer in a trial testify once that the Elko sensor he was trained that the Elko sensor FST was so sensitive that if you tied a rope to it and swung it around in a circle it would capture a breath sample. Now the next day I brought a rope to court along with an Elko sensor FST but the judge wouldn't let me have him demonstrate it was such an absurd statement. It was so absurd. And when I suggested to him that he should demonstrate it in court, uh, he was very resistant and said that uh, that's just what he was trained and he never tested it himself. So I think the judge didn't let me because I kind of made my point. Um, but it's like so ridiculous. And also, I tested it in the parking lot of the courthouse and it does not do that. <laughs> you tried it with a rope? Of course you I did. Tried I tied a rope, tied a rope to your Alcosensor FST and swung it around oh like a lasso oh my above God. my head. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, I, I tied it real tight. <laughs> I, I have uh, had seen in police reports, not with the FST, but on a really windy night, um, the oh, yeah. Alcosensor yeah, 4, yeah. the Alcosensor <laughs> 4, like getting a half a sample from the wind blowing and then, you know, the, the person's got fewer sample, fewer opportunities to blow as a result. Oh, it just rejected a sample here because of the wind. And that, I suppose, could happen. I know I tried with the, um, with the Intoxilizer 400 um, um, suck sucking, sucking air through, and mm -hmm. I was able to suck a sample through. You sucked a sample did. once on the FST, didn't I you? I sucked a sample back on the FST but once, But I think, too. like, your eyeballs almost got just sucked about, into Just your about popped out because you've <laughs> got to be sucking so hard on that thing. But yeah, well, I got zero anyway. Yeah, I mean, if you can suck back that hard, you have a defense. <laughs> and are you kidding? Don't do it because you are legitimately trying to, to uh, that obstruct, would be obstruction. And, uh, obstruct and refuse. And I think that would yeah. be solid evidence of an attempt to refuse. <laughs> of course, you may not understand, you know, English may not be your first language. Suck, blow, I don't know. We Maybe tend to use the same, those. Well, they might be the same or similar words in, in other languages. We'll have to research that and get back to yes, any linguistics listeners. experts out there. Please let me know. I don't think that's going to help us anywhere. Anyway, I I think that this is a huge problem, and government really needs to be considering what fixes that they can do. I think well, the first fix I think they can do is they can instruct the police around the country, or particularly in the province, they can just instruct them not to rely on that uh, mandatory provision because well, that would be nice. Well, yeah, because these people who are, they're running into the circumstance right now are not people who would normally be required to provide a sample because A, they have no alcohol on their breath, which means they don't have any alcohol probably in their body and they're not admitting to consumption. Well, yeah, but, but I think also they should be training, like they should bring back the manual button, but they should be training police if the subject is not blowing properly 
use the manual button. Because then you're going to, you know, all those people who are trying to fuck around with the device and obfuscate it, they're going to get a sample and they're know, not going to hide anything. You know their resistance to the manual button is because they've all been trained that the, o- the only accurate sample is deep lung air. Oh my God. Which is complete fucking bullshit. First of all, you're actually going to get a more elevated sample if you blow all the air out than your true blood alcohol level. Um, well, you've got people who are nervous there too. A lot of people can't push out deep lung air and because they're nervous, they're breathing shallow breaths and it can increase their blood alcohol or their breath alcohol concentration. The the maximum theoretical, I'm going to get Yon on to talk about this, but the maximum theoretical variation in blood alcohol concentration calculation would be like plus or minus 20% from what the BAC is. So if you're at 100, which is what a fail's triggered at, it's plus or minus 20% of that. So you're going to either get an 80 and you get a warn, or you're going to get, well, you'd go up if you were getting lo- like the deepest lung air, in which case you're going to get a 120. But so we've tested it. We've tested it. Difference. Our AlcoSensor FSTs have the manual button. Ours don't have the ridiculous um, software that they've got in BC. And we've done tests on ourselves where we've done shallow samples and pulled the manual yeah, button and the maximum and the reading well the readings tiny. yeah it's been almost identical as yeah. if you provided like a deep lung air sample so the their fear about getting an inaccurate sample they've got a fear about getting an inaccurate sample there's a much bigger fear and that is the fear of issuing somebody uh, an IRP or arresting them for refusal in circumstances where they can't blow. You know, I'd love to say no officer, nobody wants to be the officer that that issues the IRP to the innocent person. But like I tweeted the link to the CBC story on this man with the disability and, you know, put my offer out on Twitter to represent him pro bono if he contacts me. Um, and as did you for the firm to represent him pro bono if he contacts us. I didn't know you had done it. Oh, really? Yeah. I I made the unilateral decision. (laughs) I did too. When I saw the story. (laughs) Um, Anyway, the, um, but there's still people that are responding with like nonsense. Like if you can't blow, ask for a blood test instead. So let's just address that. One, you don't have a right to ask for a blood test. Then if you don't want to be asked to blow, don't drink and drive. Two, There's no information here that this person was drinking and driving. They were given a random test. So that doesn't save anybody anymore. And three, uh, serves serves them right. It's better. What's good for the many is uh, more important than the good for the one or something like that. Someone wrote. Destroying somebody's life. All for what? All for what? For, to take a guy who doesn't deserve it off the road for 90 days. And how is that good for the many? 4,500 bucks. That's not good for the many. Completely. Yeah. Um, so that, I mean, part of the thing with the IRP scheme, when they brought it out is they were saying, look, this is objective measurement every time because we're using these testers. It's not up to the police to make the decision. So it's either there's, it's objective measurement. It's either a warn or it's a fail or it's a, or you're clear and that's it. But you know, they, they, they glossed over every time when they went to court to talk about the scheme, they glossed over the refusal aspect. And in the constitutional challenge that we did at the Court of Appeal, which we took the Lemieux case, the constitutional challenge case, we took it to the Court of Appeal, we argued it last week, the government lawyers are standing up there going, you know, it's it's a situation of what happens in a tie. If the evidence is deserving of equal belief, then the onus provision kicks in, and the tie doesn't go to the police officer, it goes to the public interest. 
the tie goes to the public interest. How is the public interest served by taking away somebody's license, impounding somebody's car, hitting them with $500 in fines, plus all the other shit you have to go through, $4,200 you're on the hook for in the end. How is the public interest served by doing that to somebody who 50-50 could be innocent? That's not the public interest. That's the government coffer interest. I know I'm saying it's a cash grab. I don't care. That's the government coffer interest. And that's the interest of that same type of attitude that says good of the many versus the good of the one. Yeah, well, wait till it comes to them or yeah. their family member. Exactly. Anyway, now I'm all fired up. So we got to end angry, on a high You're angry, but we're note. done. <laughs> yeah, we're done. We got to talk about the other ridiculous driver of the week. Okay. Which is... I forgot. I already forgot. You did forgot. forget. Yeah. I don't know if you saw this video, Paul, um, but it is a uh, white uh, BMW in Burnaby on Marine Drive at the Nelson intersection. Marine Way in Burnaby. Marine Way at the okay. Nelson intersection. Okay. And uh, a man has his dash cam on. He's waiting in the left turn lane. He gets his advanced green to turn left. He's executing his left turn when the white BMW... Um, coming in the opposite direction down the road, enters the yield uh, section. To you can there's a yield lane to get onto um, Nelson. Mm -hmm. He enters that lane, goes, does not yield to the left turning driver with the right of way and the and the advanced green arrow. Um, then the N is visible on the back. Slams on his brakes upon getting in front of this guy. Pulls to the side and does a full on U turn in the middle of traffic. Oh my goodness. <laughs> like very nearly causing an accident. Oh my goodness. So. Well, I saw somebody do that actually the other day. I was driving home. I was um, uh, heading toward, uh, I was on Pacific waiting to turn left onto uh, onto the Burrard Bridge. And there was construction there. And the um, there was somebody coming out of the alley to turn right uh, to go the same direction I was going westbound. And they, there was a, a flagger. Mm -hmm. And the flagger had, had stopped traffic to let this guy out. And he drove out, and you can't make a left there because it's blocked off by plastic pickets to make sure nobody makes a left. He drives a few feet out and then makes a U-turn, almost colliding with a bunch of other cars around the pickets. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, he was in a, a Jaguar SUV, and I think he had an N. Of course, of course. So, uh, U-turns, please make them safely. <laughs> Well, Please. lawfully and safely. <laughs> lawfully and, and safely. Uh, but if you're not going to do it lawfully, at least safely. Well, I've noticed that um, a lot of people make really unsafe U-turns. Yeah. Like it's, it's rare that... I make I, like a lot of U-turns because when I'm coming home at the end of the day, if I get to my street from one direction, um, you know, depending if I stop at the grocery store or the gas station, I have to make a U-turn to be able to park in front of my house. But I always make sure that, like, if there's another car coming, even really far down the road, I just sit there and wait for that car. I might wait there for, like, 45 seconds. I've become, I almost T-boned somebody uh, who was making a U-turn on 4th one night down by uh, Darby's Pub um, when I was driving home. I think we had to discuss this on the podcast at some point. But the, um, there's, there's so many people making unsafe U-turns, it's, uh, it's disturbing to me. I would like to see a little bit of enforcement. Yep. Thanks, Kyla. Well, thank you. And if you need to reach us to talk about driving law or you are on disability and got an IRP in Chase, please contact us. Um, we want to help. Oh, I want to stop this horrible thing from happening to 604 people. 604-685-8889. Call now.